listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. So good to be here and uh, see all of you here this morning. Um, if, if this is your first time with us, my name is Ryan Post, and this is my first time with you as well. So we're all in the same boat. I, I met a few people. This was their first Sunday. I was like, it's mine too, and I'm the pastor. Um, so, uh, so good to be here and, and see all of you here. The Post family, we've been here for, uh, what has it been, about a week or so, something like that, and we have gotten settled in. We've, we're in a house, and uh, about 90, 95% through getting through all of the boxes and and uh, you guys have just been so welcoming. We want to thank you, thank you so much for uh, just, being, um, just being family members to us right off the bat. You didn't like wait until you got comfortable with us. You just opened your arms to us and said, okay, these are our new family members. And, and so we want to say thank you. That's a big deal to us moving across the country somewhere where we, we didn't have any pre-existing relationships. Um, I had an opportunity on Thursday uh, to, to um, visit with Pastor Wade in his home. We met uh, Thursday morning in his office uh, for about an hour, and it looks like we're going to make that a weekly thing, uh, just to kind of shoot the breeze, give me an opportunity to pick his brain, ask some questions, and all of those types of things. And I have a little bit of good news. It sounds like he's planning uh, to be back with us in person by the end of this month, every Sunday. So we're excited to see his face again. And, and uh, Miss Cheryl was here last night. It was good to see her. And uh, I'm just looking forward to everything that God has in store, and, and Pastor Wade is, is still a big part of that. Amen? Uh, hey, at the end of our service, we are going to be sharing communion together. And so hopefully when you walked in, you were able to get one of these communion packets. If by chance we missed you uh, and you don't have a packet yet, would you raise your hands, whether you're in the balcony or on the floor, and we have uh, some folks that are going to uh, serve you. We have a few in the back there. All right, And if you do have it, it might be a good idea to just go ahead and begin the process of getting this thing open. <laughs> and uh, because it's, it's like, it's a different, I've learned this in COVID. You just got to tell people, go ahead and get it started. And hopefully by the end of the sermon, you'll be ready to go. All right. Well, let me give you an idea of where we're headed over the next couple months. Um, Starting in September, probably the Sunday after Labor Day, uh, we're going to begin a brand new sermon series together, and we're going to journey through the Beatitudes. Every Sunday, starting second Sunday of September, we are going to look at each one of the eight Beatitudes, one by one, these eight prophetic blessings that we find at the very beginning of Jesus' most important, most complete sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he gives us his vision for human life and society under his reign. And actually, we're going to continue on right through the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know how long it's going to take us, uh, but uh, we're going we're gonna to work through the Sermon on the Mount together. And uh, that's what the next year is going to look like. We'll take some breaks here and there for Advent and other things. Uh, but, but we're going to journey through the sermon together. And we're going to begin with those eight Beatitudes, which as you'll see, the eight Beatitudes really encapsulate Jesus' entire life, teachings, death, and resurrection. And uh, I, I just have 
been a student of the Beatitudes these last few years. I've written a book that's going to be published in September, and I'm excited about journeying through the Beatitudes with you and uh, finding out how the Beatitudes should shape the way we think about our Christian faith as well as church life and our mission in the world. And uh, so all that's going to begin in September. Until now and then, we're going to be revving up the engine. You know, if you want to think of it like uh, climbing up Mount Beatitude, we're going to get all of our hiking gear together over these next couple months. And actually, over these next two Sundays, this weekend as well as next weekend, I, I plan to pick up on uh, a couple of the themes that Pastor Wade taught on back in May and in June. And uh, I feel like it would be really good to hit these uh, issues again coming from me as well. And, uh, and so this morning... Uh, the title of my sermon is United Around Jesus, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. How many of you are ready for the word today? Okay. Not bad for your first week, but just know every week I'm going to give you another opportunity, and I like to hear some participation, okay? United Around Jesus, our text is going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. And I want us to read this passage together. I'm, I'm reading out of the NRSV this morning. We're going to read it, then we're going to pause and pray, and then we'll jump right into the sermon. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your rich presence that's here this morning. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. We've all gathered together to worship you this morning. And I don't believe there's a single person here that's here by mistake or here by accident or here by random chance. God, I believe that every person here is by your design. There's something that you want to speak to us. There's something that you want to change in our lives. And so over these next few moments, we just consecrate this time to you. We set aside, as an act of worship, we set aside anything that might distract us, whether internally, externally, and we devote ourselves to hear from your spirit through the frailty of a human communicator, we're gathered to hear from you. And so we just say in one voice this morning, speak to our hearts, the very core of our being. Change our lives. May your kingdom, may your agenda be established in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So as Jesus began his ministry, momentum starting to pick up, word is getting out, people begin flocking to Jesus. And over time, he accumulates a, a large number of people. We don't even know precisely how many, but there were a large number of people who, who actually interrupted the routine of their lives, and they began to follow him. Everywhere he went, they were just captivated by this man. And they, they said, I don't, I don't just want a taste of him. I, I want to be around him all the time. And, and we could loosely call this group of people disciples. 
They were disciples. But out of this large group of disciples, as we see in this passage, there were 12 men in particular who Jesus called out and he appointed as apostles. That word apostle just means sent one. So these are the 12 men that Jesus has uniquely commissioned who are going to carry on the leadership of the work that Jesus began. Well, when Jesus ascends to heaven, they're going to carry it on. They're going to take on that work. And we have a list of these 12 individuals here in this passage. And there are two names in particular that I just want to call to your attention that I want you to have in your minds. And uh, later on in this sermon, we're going we're gonna to talk about these two men a little bit. But the two names that I want you to remember are these. The first man I want you to think about is Matthew. And we learn elsewhere that, that Matthew was a tax collector by trade. So on one hand, there's Matthew the tax collector. The second name I want you to be thinking about today is Simon the Zealot. So Matthew the tax collector, Simon the Zealot. Keep those names in the back of your mind. And later on in this sermon, I want to talk about these two men. But for now, I want you to turn over to the Gospel of John chapter 13. And um, I want to kind of set the scene here so you'll know where we are. Right here in John 13, we are in the upper room it is what we call the Last Supper. This is the final meal, the Passover meal that Jesus will have with these same 12 men. And he's going to share this final Passover meal with them. And within just a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to suffer. He's going to be crucified. And so this is kind of his final words before all of that begins to go down. Final teaching, final instructions. And I just want to look at a piece of it here with you, verses 34 through 35. Jesus tells them, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now this instruction comes at the end of three years of these men being with Jesus nonstop, 24-7, traveling with Jesus, eating with Jesus, learning from Jesus, sitting at his feet, living with Jesus in this 24-7 discipleship program. Now what is a disciple? We think, we think a disciple was a man with a long robe and sandals. No. A disciple is someone who has committed themselves and attached themselves to a particular teacher who has mastered a certain skill or art or philosophy or ability that those who enlist as students or pupils or apprentices or disciples also wish to acquire in their own lives and to master and assimilate into their own way of doing life. And that's what these 12 men have done. They, first of all, they've recognized there's something about Jesus that we crave. This man has certainly mastered something that, that we want in our lives. And so they've left everything comfortable, everything familiar to them, and they've invested everything into following Jesus, learning from him, and acquiring whatever it is that he has to teach them. And here we have in this very auspicious moment, just before Jesus is going to be arrested, he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, he gives them these final words, and he says, listen, guys, here's how the whole world 
is going to know that you're my disciples. In other words, here's how they will identify and know that you've learned from me, that you've acquired the skills that I've been trying to teach you for the last three years. It's going to be in the way that you love one another. Because that's, that's the skill I've been trying to teach you, the art of love. And when the people around you begin to see you excelling in your love towards one another, in the same way that I've, I've loved you and poured out my love for you and, and given of myself for your behalf, he says, that's what's going to cause the society around you to sit up and take notice and identify, oh, these men have been with Jesus. They've learned from Jesus. They're his disciples. Now, four chapters later, John 17 we're still, the location has not changed. We're still in the upper room. But in John 17, what we have here is we have a prayer. We actually looked at this last Wednesday night in uh, Gary Carell's Bible study. That we call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But it's this prayer that Jesus prays at this last Passover meal in the presence of his disciples. But he's praying to the Father on their behalf. The whole chapter is a prayer. Now, and and it's, there's some very remarkable things that Jesus prays. But I want to show you this particular passage in verses 20 through 23. Look at what Jesus says. I do not ask for these only, for just these 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's you and I. He's praying for us. And here's what he prays, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, everybody say, so that. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So repeatedly, Jesus says, the way that the world, the way that society, the way that Los Angeles is going to come to know that I am sent from the Father and come to believe in me, the way they're going to know that, is by the way we, his disciples, learn to dwell in love and unity with one another. Now, one more passage, and then we're going to get into some fun stuff in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the Ephesian church. Um, and, and in this passage, he's addressing what was probably the major controversy, the most significant doctrinal divide that was happening in the first century Christian movement. And that was this intractable, intractable conflict that was taking place between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. Gentiles, anyone who's not a Jew. So, so there was this constant conflict that we read about in the book of Acts and elsewhere that was taking place between the Jews and the Gentiles. And here Paul is speaking into that issue. Look at what he says, verse 14. For Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself 
one new man, or you might say it this way, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, so here's what Paul's saying. First of all, he says Jesus brings peace, and it happens through his cross. Through the cross, Jesus brings peace. But what I want to show you in this passage is that this peace that Jesus is bringing is not just peace in my heart, and it's not just peace of mind, even though those things are included. The peace that Jesus brings, Paul is teaching us, is real, actual peace between human beings, between people groups who at one time were alienated from one another and hostile towards one another. And in particular, in this uh, section, Paul is talking about this constant conflict, this heated conflict that was taking place between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. And he's trying to get them to see, no, 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 in Christ, through the cross, all of that's done away with. He's broken down the wall of hostility so that it's no more a matter of are you Jew or are you Gentile. No, what Christ is doing is he's drawing from all of these cultures, all of these people groups, and they're coming under his reign in allegiance to him. And now in Christ, there's a reforming, a reframing, a redefining of the people of God. And it's no longer based on the external markers of ethnicity or adherence to the Torah or to circumcision. No, 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 no. Now it's simply based on faith and baptism and obedience to Jesus as Messiah. So now in Christ, what he's doing, he's taking all of us, all around the world, every tribe, nation, and tongue, and he's forming us, creating us into one new humanity, a community that dwells together in love and in peace and in unity so that people who were once enemies one an of one another, now they're not enemies anymore. Now there's peace between them. And what Paul is showing us is that this, folks, is part of the great accomplishment of Jesus and his cross. Amen. I'm going to amen myself. You know, one of, one of the clearest examples I can think of, and it's, it's probably, you can think of a lot of examples around the globe. But probably the one that we hear about most often over and over and over again is this constant inability for Israelis and Palestinians to dwell in peace with one another. It's been going on for a long time. And, and over the decades, there have been many politicians and U.S. presidents who have tried to involve themselves in this conflict. And, and they've tried to bring some semblance of peace and I'm not faulting them for trying. I, I suppose they have to try. And I'm not trying to suspect their motives or anything like that. But I am going to say this. They don't have what it takes. Because this, this is a conflict that's way beyond them. But folks, this is where Christ and his vision for his church comes into play. When the church of Jesus Christ becomes a living, viable visible community of people that's drawn from all of these groups so that you have Palestinians coming into the body of Christ. And by the way, you have many Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And you have Israelis coming into the body of Christ. And you have many Israelis coming, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ as well. But you got all these different people from all these cultures, all these nations, all these different viewpoints and perspectives and backgrounds and, and histories and opinions. And yet they're all coming under the banner of Jesus Christ, learning to dwell together under his heavenly agenda in peace and in unity. What Paul is trying to show us in Ephesians 2 is that this is the manifold wisdom of God that demonstrates to the rulers of the world that what you cannot do based on your own wisdom apart from God, God is doing through his community of people who have gathered around his son who he has raised from the dead and exalted to his right hand. And that's what Paul's trying to teach us here. That's what's trying to be achieved here. And that's why, folks, peace and unity and love in the body of Christ is so important. Because listen very carefully, this is what establishes our credibility in the world. In fact, you could say it even more strongly than that. This is what establishes the credibility of Christ in the world. Christ put himself in that position. What did he say? Here's how the world's going to know. And here's how they're going to come to believe that I'm sent from the Father. By the way you dwell in love and in unity with one another. You see, when the church is just as divided as the wider society, when the church is, is characterized by the same ethnic divisions, political divisions, economic divisions that the world's divided by, then the church, it, it destroys our credibility in the world. In fact, you could even say it impugns the credibility of Christ in the world, but it's not his fault, it's our fault. He said, this is how the world's going to know by the way you love one another. So what is it that establishes our credibility in the world? It's love that produces unity, that produces peace. Amen? All right, let's get into the fun part of the sermon. We're going to do a thought experiment together. We're going to use our imaginations this morning. And by the way, this is going to take some imagination. Uh, but God gave you one, so let's fire it up. Um, and, and it involves a time machine. I just want you to know, all of my thought experiments involve time machines. So we got our time machine here. We got our DeLorean. And we're going to get into our time machine today, okay? So you're imagining with me. And we're going to zip ahead just two years. I know it's a bummer that we're not going somewhere else. But we're just going to go two years into the future. And it's 2023. It's the year 2023, and America finds itself yet again in the middle of a contentious presidential election. And I know we just got out of one, and you don't even want to think about it. Just hang with me for a moment. But it's 2023, presidential election year. America's going crazy again. And I want you to think about two men in particular. I want you to, I want you to think about two guys who are still going to be active. It's 2023. They're still active. They're still involved and doing what they do. And I'm going to go ahead and put them on the platform with me. So over here, I want you to think, first of all, think about Michael Moore. How many of y'all are familiar with the name Michael Moore? All right. Ultra liberal, far left, uh, political commentator and documentary filmmaker. So you got Michael Moore over here. Over here on this side of the platform, we have Sean Hannity. You're familiar with Sean Hannity, far-right, ultra-conservative, uh, political commentator and television news show host. So we have Michael Moore over here, Sean Hannity over here, 
It's 2023 in the midst of a presidential election. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, where's this guy going with this? It's his first sermon as pastor. He's getting into politics. I promise you, you can relax. Uh, the point I'm going to make has nothing to do with your political views, all right? But just stick with me. Let's use our imagination. So here's Michael Moore, Sean Hannity. It's 2023. And I want you to imagine this. What if both Michael Moore and Sean Hannity joined a brand new political party, the same one? And what if Michael Moore and Sean Hannity both began to endorse and promote a brand new candidate for president, the same candidate, not as a joke, but in reality? Like Michael Moore gets on the news and says, I got to tell you, I've sat down with this brand new candidate and I am so mesmerized by what they have to say, the ideas that they have. And I just got to tell you, I've come to believe this is the right person to lead our nation into the next four years. And Sean Hannity gets on his program and says, I got to agree. I mean, I don't agree much with this Michael Moore guy, but I got to tell you, I've sat down with this candidate and I've heard their vision for, the, for our society. And I'm just blown away by their vision and I've, I've come, I'm just convinced this is the right person to lead America into the future. So you have both Michael Moore, ultra-liberal, and Sean Hannity, ultra-conservative. They join the same political party and endorse the same candidate for president. Now, here's, here's just my simple question for you. How many of you believe that this would get some attention here in America? I mean, I, I think it would get a ton of attention. And I think there'd be a lot of people on one hand who, who would be very happy and excited about things being shaken up or whatever. I think you'd also have a whole lot of people who are invested in the status quo who would be kind of upset and angry about this development. But the one thing that everybody would be is they would be amazed. And see, what I want to show you is that what was happening in first century Israel around Jesus and his disciples was exactly like that. Except if you can imagine it, it was even more astounding. Remember I gave you two names at the very beginning of this sermon. The names of two of Jesus' apostles. So over here, let's talk about them. The first name I mentioned was Matthew the tax collector. Now what were tax collectors like in the first century? Well, they weren't like IRS agents. Get that out of your mind. Forget about it. Who was in charge at this time in the world? If you, were, if you were a Jew living in Israel, who was running things politically? The Romans. And the Romans, you see, had a tendency to be very nasty and mean, and, and they were, were heavy taxers. I mean, we think taxes in California are bad. Uh, there were times, historians tell us, when the Romans taxed people up to 90% of their income. And think about how humiliating this would be if you're, if you're a Jew living in that realm of Israel, which should be your land, and you want to think of yourself as a sovereign nation. I mean, we're not, we're not just any nation. We're God's nation. God started our nation. Nobody else can say that. You know, we're God's people. And not just any God, the true God, the living God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's our God. He started our nation. And then you have these foreign pagan people, the Romans, who worship gods like Mars, and Jupiter, and Aphrodite, and they've invaded you, and they've conquered you, and now they're taxing you heavily for the privilege of having been conquered by them. 
And in order to make it all go smoothly, what the Romans have done is they've recruited from amongst your own people those who are not going to resist them, but who are actually going to collaborate with them and extort and get these taxes out of their own people. See, that's what Matthew is. Matthew's a collaborator with the enemy. He's turned his back on his own nation, his own people, his own religion. And he's working for these godless Romans. And not only that, not only is he working for them, he's getting rich off of it. This was a very lucrative position to have, to be a tax collector. And so you were extorting people, not just any people, you were extorting your own people on behalf of these evil folks, the, the evil Romans. And so as you can imagine, you know, these, um, these tax collectors, you know, as they're getting wealthy, you understand there was no regulation to this. You could, anything that you collected for Rome, of course, you had some type of quota you had to meet. But after that, you could collect whatever you wanted to keep for yourself. There was no regulation. And so you were extorting your own people. And as you can imagine, to be a tax collector, you had to be a pretty tough person. I mean, you, you had to have some muscle behind you. These weren't IRS desk clerks. To be a tax collector was to be more like a mafioso type person. You know, these tax collectors were the types of guys who could make you an offer concerning your taxes that you couldn't refuse. That's who Matthew is. He's an enemy collaborating with the enemy. And on the other hand, we have Simon the Zealot. Now, who were the Zealots? Let's talk about the Zealots for a moment. The Zealots were an offshoot of the Pharisees. If you're familiar with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were a very conservative uh, religious political party because it was all the same thing. They were a religious political party in Israel, and they believed in taking Israel back for God. And the way that the, their vision for this, the Pharisees were convinced that if we could just be morally pure enough, and if we could just get all of Israel to be morally pure enough and to follow as best we can all of the laws and the customs and the traditions, if we could just be morally pure enough, somehow or another, that will provide the impetus for God to move and deliver us from our enemies and once again establish Israel as a sovereign nation and to usher in the kingdom. So that's who the Pharisees were. Were the zealots, the zealots were an offshoot of the Pharisees. And here's how it worked. Here's how it happened. In the year AD 6, when Jesus would have been a little boy, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, there was a, a man who rose to prominence in Israel named uh, um, Judas the Galilean. We actually read about him in Acts chapter 5. He's mentioned there. And Judas the Galilean was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And he was known as this fiery preacher. He had this reputation for, for being a very charismatic personality. And, and what Judas the Galilean does is he begins to gather people to himself. And he begins to launch out this announcement that we're going to start a tax revolt movement. And Judas begins to tell people that for us to pay our taxes to Rome, that's sacrilegious. It's being unfaithful to God. So he says, we just don't need to pay our taxes anymore. And there were thousands and thousands of Israelis that, that flocked to this man, that gathered around him. In fact, uh, many of them believed that Judas the Galilean was the long-awaited Messiah who God was going to use to deliver Israel from their enemies. And in fact, Judas the Galilean claimed to be the Messiah. And so he gathers all of these people. He forms them into a violent, revolutionary militia. 
and they take up swords, and they're going to plan to fight against the Romans and overthrow the Romans. Well, what do you think happens to Judas the Galilean? He gets crucified, because that's what happens. And even though Judas was killed, his movement continued. His movement carried on, and they called themselves the Zealots. And so the Zealots were this violent militia who believed in taking up swords and overthrowing Rome. They were sort of like Pharisees with guns. We're going to take Israel back for God by force. And they believed in, in guerrilla warfare. What they would do is, you know, one night they would go attack some Roman garrison and, and slit the sentry's throats and burn the garrison to the ground. That's what they would do. And, and so they, were, they saw themselves as freedom fighters. That's who we are. We're freedom fighters. We're revolutionaries. So think about it. On one hand, you have Matthew, the tax collector, who's working for Rome. He's collaborating. He's on their payroll. And on the other hand, on the other extreme, you have Simon the Zealot, who believes we ought to take up swords and overthrow Rome violently. You understand, you can't get any further apart ideologically from these two men. Nod your heads if you're with me. And what Jesus does is he invites Matthew to leave his tax booth. And he invites Simon to leave his militia group. And he welcomes both of these men to come and take the posture of a disciple and sit at his feet and to learn the Jesus way of doing life. You see, this would have gotten people's attention. I mean, this was astounding. Now, I'm quite certain of something. I'm quite certain that at least at the very beginning, that both Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot, these two men had absolutely nothing in common. They shared nothing in common except one thing, an overwhelming fascination with Jesus. And that was enough to get them started. And I'm also certain of something else. I'm pretty certain that at least at the very beginning, both Matthew and Simon shared a common assumption. They both assumed the same thing, but they were assuming the opposite of one another. I can see Matthew assuming, both of them, Matthew and, and Simon, I can see them assuming that Jesus is a lot like them. And Jesus shares their opinions. And Jesus shares their perspective. And given enough time, Jesus will reveal his movement to be basically an endorsement of their cause. Like I could see Matthew over here thinking, well, Jesus, he's one of these anti-religious secular reformers. Because everywhere Jesus goes, the religious leaders hate him. You know, the Pharisees are constantly clashing with him. They can't stand him. They want to get rid of him. They hate Jesus. The religious folks hate Jesus. And Matthew's like, man, they hate me too. So maybe Jesus and I are in the same boat. Maybe Jesus sees things the way I do. Maybe he has the same opinions I have. And he kind of looks at Jesus through that filter. And on the other hand, here's Simon. I could see Simon looking at Jesus through his own lens. And he kind of imagines Jesus to be this theocratic, militaristic nationalist who's going to overthrow Rome like him, like he wants to do. And whereas, you know, because that's exactly what Peter wanted to do, right? In, in, in the garden, that's why he pulled out his sword. All right, time to go. Let's pull out our swords. Let's do what Jesus is obviously wanting to do. 
And whereas Judas the Galilean one generation earlier failed, Simon thinks that, well, Jesus the Galilean, he's now going to take up the sword and he's going to succeed. He's going to get rid of those Romans. So you got Matthew over here saying, well, I'm with Jesus because he's going to get rid of religion. And you get Simon over here saying, I'm with Jesus because he's going to get rid of those Romans. And they were both wrong. Because what Jesus was coming to bring, what Jesus was coming to initiate was something that did not fit into the existing factions. What Jesus coming to bring did not fit into the pre-existing categories. Jesus came to bring something that was entirely new. He came to burst those old wineskins. Another way of saying it is this. Jesus didn't come to take sides. He came to take over. He came to bring something that was fresh and new and unimaginably beautiful and something that's not idealistic. But even today, it is viable through his church. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's been poured out. See, that's the key to unity right there. The Holy Spirit creates unity. That doesn't mean we don't have anything to do. No, there's some effort we got to put into it. That's why Paul says, contend for unity, strive for it. We got we to gotta do some stuff to preserve unity. But ultimately, you, unity is a product of the Holy Spirit. What you and I do is we simply position ourselves and yield and facilitate the movement of the Holy Spirit through our relationships. So Jesus gathers Matthew. He gathers Simon. And he says, come on, guys, Matthew, if you can learn to love Simon the way that I love Simon, and Simon, if you can learn to love Matthew the way that I love Matthew, that's how the world's going to come to know and believe and be convinced that I'm sent by the Father, and they're going to know that you've sat at my feet and you've learned from me and that you've you have found something. You've tapped into something that transcends all of these petty categories. So listen closely. This is what I'm bringing it to. The task of the church, and I'm talking about this church, and it's not unique to village. It's the task of every local body of believers. But the task of village church is to be a living, visible, viable community of people who dwell together in peace and love and unity under the agenda of Christ, under allegiance to him as his disciples. And the key to that happening and the key to that working is every one of us being endlessly fascinated with Jesus. And being, listen, being endlessly fascinated with Jesus, we can have different opinions. We can have different views whether about theology or politically or just about life in general, we can have all kinds of different takes and viewpoints and opinions. But when it comes to Jesus, there's something about Jesus that just is, I find irresistibly attractive. And there's something about Jesus that just outweighs all of that other stuff, as important as it may be. I mean, this is Jesus we're talking about. And so, yeah, we can have our different opinions, but this is Jesus. And we gather around him. We unite around his agenda and our common allegiance to his authority. And Jesus says, this, this is what's going to cause Los Angeles County 
your neighborhood, the people around you, to come to know and believe that I'm sent by the Father, by the way that you dwell in love and unity together. When we facilitate division in our relationships, and this is what so many Christians fail to see when they're in the middle of it, but when we facilitate division, and it starts in our minds, in our thinking, in our thought patterns, when we allow division to take place in our body, what we're actually doing is we're empowering the demonic powers and principalities to destroy our credibility in the world and to impugn the credibility of Christ in our society. So when we preserve the unity of the body of Christ, which is created by the Holy Spirit, think about it like this. It's actually a, a powerful form of spiritual warfare. Or let's just say it like this. Don't work with the devil. Work with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings together. The devil loves to divide. He loves to break apart. He loves to disintegrate. He loves to play people off of one another without them even knowing it. He loves to manipulate people and say, you guys be part of this group, you be part of this group, and hate one another. You hate them because they hate you. You hate them because they hate you. Instead, don't carry that into the church. Don't carry that into our relationships. Don't carry that into your thought patterns. Let's work with the Holy Spirit. Work with the Holy Spirit and let's do what the Apostle Paul says. Strive, struggle, contend to preserve the unity created by the Holy Spirit around our common allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's why Carrie and I love Village Church. That's one of the things that brought us here is because Village Church is a place where, you know, we have some differences in this room. We really do on a lot of different levels. But just, let's just keep it to theology for a moment. Just keep it to different views about theological issues. There's a lot of different views on a lot, a lot of different topics in this room. We all have different backgrounds. You know, I come from a background that most of you don't have. Every one of you, you come from a background most of the people in this room don't have. We're very unique. And we all have different viewpoints on a lot of different things. And you know what? I believe God likes it that way. God likes it. Think about it. If God wanted to, because God is God, God can do anything. If God wanted to, God could have dictated the entire Bible word for word in such a way that it wouldn't leave any room for disagreements on anything. God being God could have done that. He could have, God could have easily just spelled out on every single divisive issue, here's the truth, here's the way you need to think. But instead, the Bible allows for some ambiguity on a lot of different things. It allows for different views. It allows for some different takes. And I think God is totally okay with that. I think he's totally fine with that because our unity does not depend on us having universal agreement on every conceivable doctrinal issue. God's not after uniformity. I don't even think that's a goal of God's. God's goal is not to get every single person in this room to agree on every single theological issue. God's not interested in that. What God is interested in is you and I learning how to hold loosely to some of those secondary opinions on those non-essential matters. We're going to hold them loosely. And nevertheless, we're going to join hands. We're going to join our lives together, united around our allegiance to Christ and his vision for the world. And Jesus says... This is how the world's going to know that I am who you say I am. I am the person you're singing about. 
and that you belong to me. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.